0: Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am your host, Justin Landon, and tonight we have debut novelist Fran Wild on the show. Fran is an author and technology consultant. Her first novel, Updraft, is out September 1st. Her short stories have appeared in publications, including Asimov's Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Nature, and Tor.com. She's also the host of the podcast, Cooking the Books. Welcome, Fran.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: So, uh, real, real quick, like I find the nature the magazine shows up on lots of genre writers and like, I have never read or seen nature. But, like, okay. every, everybody does something in nature.
1: What's going on there? <laughs> um, nature Futures is a, a short, short fiction column that runs at the back of every nature magazine. And I love it because it can be anything. They've gotten in trouble for that, too, over the years, that, that it could be anything. But um, it is a chance for uh, sci-fi writers to explore concepts in within the covers of a scientific magazine. And for those of us who are whose partners are in the scientific field, um, and who may or may not be wishing to eventually publish in nature, it's also an excellent opportunity to yell first, like I got there first may or may not have happened in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also, you know, framed it and put it up on the wall so that he had to look at it a lot. But
0: (laughs) I gotcha. (laughs) <laughs> hey, look, when you have an opportunity to spike the football, you spike the football. Yeah. The way it is. I
1: was super psyched. It is, it's, it's, they do art. They do a traditional print layout. It was a fantastic experience for me. And the editors at Nature really work hard to make sure that the story shines.
0: So now I know. Now I know more about Nature.
1: It does have a word count limit. I think it's around 800, 850 words.
0: Yeah, I do know they're really short. I've, yeah. I've seen them sort of like republished in various places before. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I read an Al Reynolds Short fiction collection, and he had a story in there from Nature. It was one page. It was great. Yep. Um, but uh, but yeah, I just always see it pop up, and I I I don't know. It's I, I imagine it's not a magazine that like genre fans pick up, but more of a a little genre nugget for the uh, for the scientist.
1: I think it's fun for them, um, and and probably good for them too. It's like having a little sugar for your cereal,
0: right? You know, not that not that science is boring in any way, but
1: uh, actually, I think it's fascinating. I love reading. The science. Um, I I like reading engineering papers too, so I'm I'm a little bit weird that way.
0: I mean, I would call you a nerd, but it's kind of like implied, <laughs> right? I mean, we're, a, we're on a podcast called Rocket Talk,
1: so <laughs> I, I'm like, oh boy, are those schematics excellent.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so you do a podcast called Cooking the Books, which which is about the intersection of food and. Uh, science fiction and fantasy ostensibly. Mm-hmm. So you've got a thing for food in genre books. Did you by any chance listen to the episode that Sam Sykes and I did about feast scenes? I have not okay. yet.
1: It's March but I haven't listened.
0: I highly recommend it, but obviously. <laughs> but well we have a back and forth about feast scenes. I want to ask you about feast scenes. Like, Where do you come down on the feast scene and is and, and I'm going to make it a little leading as a question. Like, okay. is, it, is it obnoxious food porn or essential world building?
1: I think it depends on who writes it. Um, I think the, the feast scene in Doom is essential world building because that's where you see water waste at its, um, at its, its best and its worst when they're dropping wet, um, towels on the floor and people are scurrying in to pick them up and wring them out so they can drink from them. Um, I think that in other feast scenes, um, like Robin Hobbs feast scenes, there are exquisite, Meals prepared, but there's also a bit of a class war thing going on um, where characters who are used to eating in the kitchen suddenly find themselves at the main table and realize that with the time it takes for the food to get from the kitchen to the table, the food's cold when it arrives. So you're at the best table eating the worst food. Those sort of things I really love.
0: Mm, I like that. So those are two very excellent examples of the feast scene deployed. Mm-hmm. The, the Wheel of Time uh, and the dangers of uh, angering the Tor overlords. Uh, the Wheel of Time series, for example, has like copious amounts of feast scenes that I find mostly useless. Uh, but that's I, just me.
1: For me, I think it depends. Um, in in the Song of Ice and Fire, the feast scenes are fascinating um, because you get line of supply as well as everything else. In Elliot de Baudard's latest book, um, you get these amazing feast scenes in a scarcity society. And she talked with me just now, so I'm cheating. Um, the last Cooking in the Books episode was with Zen Cho and Elliot. And she was talking about how the houses in her book, The House of Shattered Wings, use the feasts as intimidation tactics. Because you're eating this food that you couldn't possibly get locally in, in a scarcity society. So that's a show of strength. Those sort of things fascinate me. Um, but, you know, that there are definitely chapter length feasts, even in Werner Vinge, that sometimes you just kind of say, okay, what am I learning here? Or is this a, a point where the plot needs to rest and sort of slow the pacing? Because feast scenes also do that.
0: Yeah, they're also a great excuse for people to like talk, I suppose. But Definitely. which I'm, which I'm totally fine. With. I love a good dialogue. But yeah, <laughs> but I, but I don't really need to know the texture of the greased yeah. chicken leg, you know. So that's <laughs> that, it's, it's it's sometimes when feast scenes get purple, I think for me is maybe when they uh, when I lose touch with them. But have you read Hild? I have not.
1: Okay, because she really uses um, feast scenes amazingly well. How about Anathem?
0: By Neil Stevenson?
1: By Neil Stevenson, yes. You knew we were going to get here.
0: Funny you should mention that. Um, <laughs> I know Anathema is one of the Neil Stevenson novels I have not attempted to read. As you know, I have never completed a Neil Stevenson novel, despite my best efforts.
1: <sighs> one of these days, Justin. One of I'll, these I'll, I'll get you one that you can
0: finish. I have tried uh, Snow Crash, The Baroque Cycle, uh, oh, was the other one? I, oh, uh, Crypt- Cryptonomicon. Crypto-
1: yeah, Cryptonomicon.
0: Uh, and I tried uh, another one that I can't recall now. Reemdi? Not that one. The one before that one. Oh. No, maybe it was Reemdi. Okay. Was, maybe it was Ream-D.
1: Anathem. Was before. Yeah, Ream-D. I
0: know it was Reemdi. Yeah, I tried that one. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't work for me. So, you know, Neil Stevenson. He is neither here nor there. He's an impenetrable writer of prose <laughs> that makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> hey. It's just like re- it's like reading in another language. I just I don't get it. You've got me on this thing now. I did think when you brought up Aliette I thought, you know, feasting cuz like the opening chapter of Aliette's book is uh, is feasting on angel flesh. So, yes.
1: Yeah, and I I tried really hard not to make the angel food pun when we were talking <laughs> and I couldn't I couldn't help myself. It was just there and I picked it up and she was everybody was like, "Oh, that was awful."
0: And of course, you have a book coming out September 1st, Updraft, which I am on page 239 of.
1: Oh my gosh, Justin. Right this minute. You're almost to the feast scene. No, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) I'm actually almost to the fight scene.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: But, uh, because I had to skip ahead last night to see who she was going to fight, because I I had to go to sleep, but I wanted to know.
1: No spoilers.
0: I know, no spoilers. But, uh, so Updraft's coming out. Rather than start talking about it and then make you tell me what the book, then tell people what the book is, why don't you tell me what the book is first and then we'll talk about it.
1: Um, the book is, the book exists in layers. That's, that's the way I've been talking about it lately. Um, it is a, a high flying adventure on one layer that is about songs and silence, secrets and betrayal, monsters and mayhem. Um, in another layer, it is also about, um, a society that has grown so high that it's forgotten where it's come from. And it's, citizens are not only obsessed with moving up on the towers that they live on, they are almost forced to because the way the bo- they live on um, bone towers, living bone towers, and the way that the bone towers grow is they grow tier by tier um, as sort of a natural extension when, redu- when induced by a stressor, which is um, a form of something called scour weed that's used to abrade the top of the tower, and they're, they've been made to rise unnaturally and uh, unnaturally fast. As the towers rise, the center core of each tower but one expands out until it sort of supports the structure going up. And this happens in some bone forms in reality as well. But this expansion out of the central core reduces the amount of space that is safe to live in. Um, You find yourself pressed to the edge. And it's, it's also really bad to be on the down tower when you know, lots of people up top don't have anywhere to throw their trash um, except down. So it's kind of messy down there. You don't want to be down there and it's not very sheltering. So everybody tries to move up for their own safety um, as well as their own social status. That part of it is sort of where you find Kirit, my main character, her best friend Nat and their mothers who um, have they've been sort of raised together and this almost could have been Nat's story as well, but Kirit was the one who really spoke to me um, from the beginning and they are living in a quadrant of the city that is relatively not, I wouldn't say they're well off, They've been known to be slightly rebellious over time. There has been um, a known traitor that was taken from their tower, um, who is Nat's father. And so for a while there, these two individuals were viewed as very unlucky by their tower. And we're meeting them at their opportunity to prove themselves and become part of the larger society. And things happen. Things go badly and consequences ensue but along the way um we meet some of the predators that live in the sky we meet some of the predators that live in the towers and um it's it's a i'm hoping that the broader story and the fact that there are other stories going on beyond kirits kind of shines through because this is a world that i like to write short stories in as well as other stories um i said that there was one tower that didn't grow from the center core, and that is the tower at the center of the city called the spire. And that is near where you are reading right now. Um, they are actually in the center of the spire, which because it doesn't grow core out, it, it actually has a, an exterior bone wall, um, that supports its in- interior tiers. It's almost like a fortress. And the center of it is hollow, which means that they can create a wind tunnel effect with inside, and that is where you have a lot of knife fighting and and winged fights within a wind tunnel.
0: So, I have to ask, because this concept of move up or move out, essentially... Yep. Uh, feels a little bit like a commentary on a certain financial structure that may exist in our country. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is any of that a, a conscious commentary on your part?
1: I would say I have a, a, a background in um, community building and mostly online community building, but also um, I, I did a lot of work in my studies on the way that societies. Uh, view class and view money um it also I, I was also a milton scholar for a while and so i think pandemonium has some impact here as well just that 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 sort of great fall from from um, respectability and then the rising of the city of pandemonium uh, out of out of lake always struck me as as kind of a really interesting point to begin something um but yeah i i there is Like I said, this is a story told in layers. And if you want to read it and just have it be a fun adventure, that's there. But if you decide that you'd like to go back and check to see if it has an ontological pulse, that's there as well.
0: Dude, that's a good word. Ontological, I'm into that. (laughs) That's that's a very good, like, uh, descriptive uh, phrase. You mentioned a little bit there that you felt like this could have been Nat's story as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, But curious when he spoke to you. It seems to me there that you probably had a choice to make in your own head as you laid the story out about it because you wrote it as a first-person narrative. Mm-hmm. But as you say, you kind of hope people see things outside of just Kirit's story, but when you write them in first person, that's going to it's sort of inherently 100% her story. So, yes. um you you clearly made a choice there. Why did you make that choice?
1: Well, and we're limited by what she's able to see and her awareness is as well. Um, when, when I made the choice, it was because I could hear kirat bargaining with her mother to be allowed to go on this trading run with her. And that wasn't the first part of the story. The, f- the first part of the story that I wrote was the, the, um, fight in the wind tunnel, um, the, that kirat was having with, with an opponent who shall not be named. And that was originally a short story. Where she was fighting to be heard, essentially. And there's a lot of pieces to the impact of voice, of trusting your own voice, which is, you know, a fairly coming of age concept, but also people in the community who are not being heard because of where they stand or how they look or who they are, um, which is a much more adult topic. When she was fighting to be heard, Kirit was just kind of a badass. And she was really going at things head on. She wasn't trying to be nice. She wasn't trying to be kind. She was just trying to be heard. And I liked that. I liked that she was willing to do almost anything in order to gain that ability. And she was fighting to be heard. So I I let her speak. And it turned out that um, that was a a good choice, but I also sort of um, let a, a, a very um, active character into a situation where if she didn't like the plot, she could totally you know go take a coffee break, and leave me a little note while I was writing about how my my ideas were bad. Um, characters talk to you. If you're, if you're paying attention, I, I fully believe in, in first couple drafts that they, that they do give you feedback on what you're writing about them. And Kira would be having these conversations with her cohorts and be saying things like, this plan is really stupid or I'm really bored here. <laughs> and I'd go back and find these things and realize that this was where the plot was slowing down. So at one point I had this whole thing planned out. I knew exactly where everything was going. And I wrote a character with enough agency, I think, to say, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. And she took off and went another direction. And I'm really glad that I just let it go and just let the words come because that is, it turned into one of my favorite scenes.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um,
1: but she's a known plot destroyer.
0: (laughs) I'm going to come back to that in a second because (laughs) I think there's some, there's something I'm curious about. Okay. But before I get to that, yeah. uh, I read a, a book by Bradley Bollier. You know Brad? Yes. Okay. Yes, I... So Bradley Bollier wrote The Winds of Kalakavo, which yes. is which is a book about windships. And he did some some wind shipped battles. And mm-hmm. I, I talked to him about it subsequently. And I was and we sort of exchanged this concept of like it's really hard to write uh in three axes where Where you have these characters that aren't just moving forward and back and left to right, they're also moving up and down, and like the blocking that is required mm-hmm. to accomplish this mm-hmm. uh, how long did it take you to figure out like how do you describe an aerial combat?
1: Oh gosh, well, this is the Enders game problem, isn't it? I mean, this is why um Ender's game still has so much power in game design communities is because it gets game design students and and I used to teach game design a little bit, I would get people um trying to think about their the space that they were creating the game in, and they'd just be thinking along, you know, a linear access. Um and I'd say, okay, what's happening above, what's happening below? And all it took was reading about um the 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 battle space in Ender's game for them to realize it wasn't sideways or up or down. It was the enemy's gate is down. It's you are where you are in relation to the people you're fighting with a sky battle with, with the wing fighters when they're playing their, their, their wing fighting, um, outside of the towers and within the tower, especially that sort of thing is influenced not only by the the where people are in relation to each other, but the wind shadows they're creating, and I'm I'm guessing that that Brad talked about this too. I haven't read The Winds of Calcalva, but it's on my list because I love anything that invokes sailing. Um, but the wind shadows that are created by people flying and the way that they um, interact with each other, just by passing by each other, is an amazingly powerful thing. You can knock somebody out of the sky or or off of a good breeze on the water just by um, passing them at the right angle and so thinking about things on on three planes for me comes mostly out of the experience that i have um sailing and i did a lot of small boat racing when i was a kid i taught sailboat racing for a long time um and so that that you know, you're not just sailing at each other, you're trying to maneuver around, even though you're just doing that on on a flat plane of the water, you're dealing with the wind as well. Um, adding the sky to it and the fact that threats can come from below and above, as well as from each side is where it got really fun. And I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, there's something sort of Uh, horrifying might be the wrong word, but tension building about this concept of, of really there's danger can be anywhere. Yep. Uh, You also have a great scene in the book that I didn't really connect the dots until you sort of described it. It's sort of one of those things that I didn't really pay a lot of attention to, but where you have somebody flying in front of another person and it changes the way they're getting the wind i imagine it's sort of like in sailing where you see like this in the in the sailing movies right like they cut in front of them and they steal their wind (laughs) you're not not talking
1: about that sailing movie are
0: you i don't even know what sailing movie i'm talking about they made
1: one called wind and it was terrible no
0: i have not seen wind oh
1: but yeah there there are ways to um cut off another person's wind when you're sailing and but there's also soiled wind wind spills off of foils whether they are horizontal foils like um when you're when you're hang gliding or when you're if 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 you have really really good silk and bone wings of course then as you pass through the air you're going to cut a shadow behind you that is the air spill off your foils and that impacts everything that you pass as well as everything that's trying to follow you
0: so, uh, th- this reminds me that I was, at some point I was going to ask you that you have a technology background and you're writing, fa- you're writing fantasy and mm-hmm. wh- why aren't you writing science fiction? And maybe, maybe you're, you're there's enough engineering in this, uh, in these uh, wings to, to satisfy whatever science part of your brain that you normally use. Cause it sounds like you put a lot of technical thought into this, which I really. Can i
1: I did and I did a lot of research uh, and I love to do research but i um i I spent a lot of time talking with people who understand clouds and wind even you know better than I do I understand wind in a competitive fashion but I don't um, and i I understand it the way that it it feels when it you know when you're when you're leaning out over a cliff and it's just blowing 20 knots and it feels really amazing and like you could it could almost hold you up. But I didn't know the cloud dynamics and there are a couple of times in this book and there's definitely some times in the next book where I really needed some solid, um, you know, academic advice and and um, scientific advice on that. And I would come out of these long discussions and think, you know, I just spent two hours arguing about clouds. When I have giant, invisible, carnivorous flying cephalopods, and that is kind of funny that I'm this obsessed about getting the clouds right, but if the clouds are right, then the wind is right, and if the wind is right, then then the scenario is kind of believable, and you can throw in a piece of just the most fantastic creature at that point, and it will be supported. That said, I do write science fiction. Um, both of the stories that are in Asimov's are high-tech science fiction stories uh, that use technology in unusual ways. So I do a lot of that as well. And I, I have um, ambitions to publish a, a sci-fi novel, but um, there is very little to no magic in my books besides the monsters. It's all kind of engineering.
0: The reality is, and we hear this a lot. Like uh, I have dragons, you know. What we often hear it reference to. Um to sexism, sort of like an anachronistic sexism in fantasy, you know, where somebody's like, well, we've added in dragons, but you can't emancipate women, you know, mm. but, but by the same concept, you, you can apply the same thing, the same logic if you want to to like, well, you have these invisible sky monsters. Why do you have to worry about the clouds being right? But there's like a no. certain amount of authenticity that it you... needs
1: to feel right for me. Right. Um, I come from Four, four generations of engineers. They're going to mess with me if I get the facts wrong, but it's, it's about four generations of engineers. And it is really important to build in a believable structure to me. Um, and I mean, I, I checked everything that I could as far as the, the bridges and the, and the wings. And, you know, is this, is this possible given these atmospheric possibilities? Is, are these, you know, well built enough to be believable? With engineers who who i I trust very much um including one who who knows um foils and and airflow extremely well
0: yeah so my my theory on this is that you can make up your own physics, yeah. and, and the reader will believe it if yes. it's consistent mhm uh but really it, as long as you have a system that is believable like it's sort of like with Brandon Sanderson's magic yes. systems, for example, like He's done so much building of them that we totally believe them because they're, yes. they're internally consistent. Yes. And so in this case, like it may just be easier to use the actual physics as opposed to inventing them. Well,
1: I mean, with with world building, and I, I love world building fiction. It is, it is where I – it's my home base, and that's why probably I had a great time sitting through 200 pages of linguistics at the beginning of Anathem. And we're back to Neil Stevenson, because I I just love watching the way worlds build. I loved Embassy Town for the same reason. Just the the whole thing clicked together for me in such a way that I wanted more of that, please. And when I sat down to write, I really wanted to write an environment that was as fantastical as I could make it, but also as as real feeling, so that people would really feel like they were surrounded by this world and that they could they could enjoy what was happening within it because of those things
0: yeah it's funny you mentioned Mieville because when you mentioned earlier you were kind of describing your world and then you came back with this there's not a lot of magic it's it's more engineering mm-hmm. it actually reminded me quite a bit of sort of the boss log books which do have quite a bit of magic as well but
1: yeah they have thaumaturgy
0: right but this crazy let's be honest like crazy crazy in the nicest possible way <laughs> Like your setting's a little crazy, in the same way, in the same way that like some of Mieville's, uh settings are just crazy. Um, and one of the questions that I wrote out before we started this was sort of like, you have a lot of what I would call non-standard world building that you've done in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, I think, we're seeing more of this in yeah. fantasy and science fiction. You know, I mean, you, whether it's Cameron Hurley or, or, or Mac Max Gladstone's a great example of yeah. batshit world building, but uh, but like this seems to be the new trend. Is like readers don't seem to be really be satisfied with sort of like the standard settings, and and I have to tell you, this is one of this is you're pushing the envelope, and I like it. I mean, oh cool, did, I'm glad you like it. Are you? I mean, do you feel like that's the direction we're heading though, with with even more I don't know esoteric settings? I mean, is this what people want?
1: I think that people have to really enjoy writing in the world. Um, in order for people to want to read it, so I think if you enjoy writing um, epic fantasy, I, I have a, a novella coming out from Tor.com next year that is pretty much epic fantasy. Um, it, it's not standard. Again, there's there's some oddities in there, but I write problems. I I tend to write games um, a little bit. I I often put a game in into my story at some point or another. Um, There's not necessarily a big one in updraft, but there is one coming. And I think that that in part is, is what you're seeing. You're seeing the layers. You're seeing the, the fact that a lot of us are writing in a world that isn't black and white anymore. And we need to write the gray areas and the gray areas are often very weird. Sometimes as in the case with Mieville and and the remade, especially they're they're horrifying and they're terrifying, and um, you don't want to remember them after you've read some of them. But they need to exist just to remind you that they're there. I think um, Clive Barker does the same thing with with books like Weave World, which I you know I read way, probably way too early for me, but it it left a mark. Um, at the same time, I think we also want the the familiar as well. So I think there's going to be room for everything. What I love seeing is um, the different landscapes and and the, um, the 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 cultural influences that are coming in from people like Netty or or Korfor, and I I I don't know if you've read any Ben Okri. Um, it, it feels like. Her- Heresy to mention Nettie and Ben in the same sentence because they write very opposite things. But um, Ben wrote a book called The Famished Road, and I think it's The Famished Road. Let me check. That's <laughs> correct. I was going to have Okay. Um, and I mean, it's, he writes these incredibly lyric things where the, the world feels almost sentient. Um, there's just, and you find that sometimes the narrator feels like it's the eyes of the world turned upon the, the characters in the story. And I love that. And so it was, it was to back to your earlier question about, um, writing in first person rather than writing in third person. It was absolutely a choice. Um, and I wanted because it, it was curate and the issue of voice that was coming through and the issue of, um, who to listen to and who not to listen to as filtered through curate's experience. I think that I really wanted that first person awareness of of voice and what you are hearing and what you hear and what you say. Um, because you know how things can kind of resonate in your head as, as you're saying them or as you're hearing them. And you can give, um, I'm going to quote a Terry Pratchett character, but you can give them first thoughts and second thoughts and third thoughts as you, as you assess them. This is a, a real opportunity with a first person voice, especially first person past tense um, that isn't necessarily available in some forms of third-person, but in other forms of third-person it is. So. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to go off the rails here a little bit. This is not a question <laughs> I had thought about. I never go off the rails. So. <laughs> but somebody on on Twitter today, I was asking questions. I just said, hey, uh, what's a panel that you want to see that you've never seen before? And somebody suggested that we uh, do a panel on basically – on writers who are almost there, but haven't been, haven't quite gotten published yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, how to get over that hump, which is a very long conversation we don't need to go into, but I yes. bring it up because my answer to that question is, is it's almost always voice. Mm-hmm. And it's because you're a good writer. This, the plot's fine, but it just doesn't engage. Like, right. and I think voice is set and it's to find good voice, right? Like it's, you can't, it's just, it just, you have it. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think voice is, I mean, I think voice might be the most important thing in novel writing. What do you think?
1: For me, it is one of the most important things. I mean, the the world is important. The plot is important. The action and the fact that the that all the characters in your book have depth and a past and um, a, a future. And they all consider themselves the, the main character in their own story. Um, is all really important. But I think, too, that hearing that person speak um, and feeling comfortable with that voice and feeling like that character couldn't sound any other way is really central. Um, when I was talking with Audible.com about the audiobooks for this series, they sent me three tapes of different... Um, Actresses who could possibly narrate this book. And they said, listen to them. They're, they're obviously not talking in the same cadence as Kierit's, but see if, see if you like one. See if anything rings, causes, sort of rings a bell in your head. And I listened to two and I thought, oh, they're very nice. They're, they're lovely. And then I listened, I was listening backwards. So she, this was actually the first person listed. Um, I, I listed, I listened to Christine Hvam. And her voice was exactly the t- the timber that I was hearing in my head for Curat. so I can absolutely understand that as as a necessity for a good, solid novel. I think you get that in a number of different really good books. Karen Memory has an extraordinary voice. It sure Barrett. does. Yeah, I mean that one. Just you. It, that one will follow you home.
0: Mm-hmm. I would argue, like I. Had Bear on the show, and I, I, I think I may have said that. I think I said I said this is a this is a vo- this is a book clearly that you had the voice, and then you built the book around that voice. Yep. You know that was what came to you first. Yes. Uh, now in your instance, it sounds like this is more the world came first before anything else.
1: It it did in one part. It was another short story that I wrote that um, had different characters in it, but it's the same world. The Bone Towers were there. The city. Um, needing to be appeased was there. The wings, um, the silk and bone wings were absolutely there. And you, and even in that one little short vignette that I wrote when I first wrote the story, you see the um, patchwork wings of the kids learning to fly in the distance. And I, I, I brought that back into the final novel. But it wasn't, ready as a novel it was it was a short story that I was sort of thinking about sending around and then I wrote the second short story which was the knife fight in the wind tunnel, um, the winged knife fight in the wind tunnel because that's important that that I really heard Kirit's voice and that's when, um, I, start, I started asking questions and, and my beta reader started asking questions about what kind of world is this that would do this to its people and why is this happening and where the heck did this wind tunnel come from and all these great questions came up and, and that's when I started building out all of the answers and all of the discussions that would become the novel and that's when I really heard Kirat arguing with her mother um, which is the, the opening scene of the book Is it's, she's not arguing, she's bargaining because they're traitors, and and she prides herself in her bargaining skills.
0: Right. So you've kind of mentioned a little bit about the you know, short stories kind of came first, and you 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 clearly did not write this thing in order in all the ways because you you know one of the scenes that's in the middle of the book you said was one of the first things you wrote, and so yep. I'm very curious. Yeah, that's
1: uh, that's my piece on on Mary Robin, Robinette Kowal's blog is um, is the be- best bit for me is the middle.
0: Right. <laughs> so, I'm very curious about a little bit about the about your editorial process and like where this book started and where it ended up. You know, it's it's a pretty tight book at about I mean, it, I don't know how many if I would guess it's probably something like 95,000 words.
1: Mm, it's about 102,000 words.
0: Oh, 7,000 off. That was pretty close. <laughs> that was pretty close. I was like two chapters off. Yeah. Um so it's pretty tight for a fantasy novel. Somehow as I read it, I and in the way you've described it, like I am and you, you talk about these scenes that you had your character talking about how bored they were in the middle of the book. I mean I imagine like Oh, that went
1: away. Right. I, mean,
0: I was just saying I imagine there are a lot of words that didn't make its way into the final draft.
1: The the cutting room floor is knee deep in words. It's um I I had hoped because I this was my second novel. My first novel I wrote on a dare. Somebody dared me that I couldn't write a novel in 90 days. And I did. I wrote it in 89 days. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to write another novel in the same time. And um, the first draft of this I wrote in six weeks. And that was just this incredible feeling of, wow, I can really do this. This is great. And then I went back and I read the first The first third is pretty much um, what you see. That, that first section is how it began originally when I when I finally went back to write the novel. And I knew what was at the center of the book. But I didn't quite know how to up the stakes as much as I needed to. And I learned that over time and through um, some workshops some really intense workshops that I did, which I'm very grateful for. Um, And I ended up taking the second half of the book and just throwing it away and rewriting it again. And that took a bit longer the second time because I was really in um, in deep with these characters. And I would wake up in the morning thinking, what choices are they going to make now? And I sort of knew, but I had to go let my drafting process go. Um, when I came back to edit it, tightening those things down and finding places where I had, you know, an operatic level cast of characters and I needed to narrow it down to a few, um, it really, it started to come really clear. But I think because I write short stories and because I tend to cram an entire world into a short story occasionally, um, things happen pretty fast. And I do a lot of, I make an awful lot of effort to have the world building be told in ways that the characters are interacting with it rather than um, trying to sit down and, and walk you through the entire um, bone structure of the towers.
0: How much changed from the time that you sold the book to tour? And to where it is now changed? Did you, have, did you have any major rewrites, or did it did it was it pretty smooth after you after you got it sold?
1: Um, we did some we did some work because at the time that I sold it, it was YA was really popular and was very selling very hot. So I had it angled in the pitch to be YA, but I was kind of hoping that what happened did it, that what actually happened was going to happen, which is they offered me the choice whether that, whether I wanted it to be YA or sort of adult crossover and open to many different readers. And I chose the latter, even, you know, even though it was a risk at the time, I'm really glad I did. Um, so we did a little bit of work to make sure that, um, Kirit's approach to things was believable at her level of maturity. Um, and, and to really make sure that, she was, because there is, there's no big relationship cycle in this book. She's, she's going through it fighting for her honor and her future. And she doesn't really have time to, to form a, a, any more bonds than she already has with her family and her friends. She does, she does form a couple of friendships, but there's no major, um, there's, there's not a lot of kissing scenes in this book. And, when I sat down with Miriam to work on my it, Mir- my editor at tour, Miriam Weinberg, it was brilliant because she'd, just, she'd look at scenes and she'd be like, I really like this. This is great. And, and the arc of the story is great. But can you just sort of embiggen this bit right here and, and really kind of deepen it a little bit? And a couple of those times were places that secondary characters really stepped up and, and deepened the world and deepened the whole concept of voice. Um, it who is one of my favorite characters now is one of those. I didn't realize it had so much potential until Miriam and I were talking and I realized what was up with it and I said, "Oh my gosh, this is what's going on." And she said, "Yes, that's it." And she was a great cheerleader for that whole development.
0: That's the crazy old guy in the basement, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Got it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like him.
1: I like him a lot too.
0: Well so I'm really actually interested by the fact that you had one point had a choice to position this as YA or adult because mm-hmm. I can see where if you were going to go YA where you'd almost have to make changes.
1: I th- I think you're talking about YA tropes and I think YA has has broadened out from that substantially. Um but also, I don't know that I would have gotten to do the depth of what we were talking about before of the, the economics and the politics and all of the interplay of um, multiple generations, which is really important to me to have those those connections of people related to each other and not who are working together. You see, you still see a lot of divide in YA between the age groups. Mm-hmm. um and they're you know they're fighting each other or they're you know letting each other down or i mean one of my favorite tv shows right now is the 100 and they have to go through practically a whole season before you get over the whole parents are idiots thing and it's um it the 100 is amazing and the dialogue is fantastic and the parents are actually lit, total idiots but they separate the generations in much the same way that a lot of YA still does. And I think that's necessary for some stories, but it, it, I really wanted to write a community where you had um, multiple generations interacting and, and influencing each other's stories, because I think that's possible too.
0: Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to kind of touch on a little bit is you mentioned in your, 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 your elevator pitch, that was a little longer than an elevator, but an elevator pitch yeah, where yeah. You, you sort of mentioned the word secrets. Yes.
1: Well, I mean, my elevator pitch, depending on who you are, if you're, if you're an academic, I will say, you know, this is, this is Victor Hugo meets Italo Calvino with squid. If you are someone else, I I would say this is China Mieville's version of Hunger Games with squid. It's always with squid. I can't not say that, even (laughs) though they're not, they're not technically squid because they have no beaks, but they are, um, I, I got in this long debate with my copy editor because she, she wrote this beautiful definition of what, what the sky mounts were and it's highly aggressive flying tentacular cephalopods which I like but it doesn't have the same cadence as um, flying invisible carnivorous squid so I kind of still think of them as that
0: yeah I don't think a lot of people know what a cephalopod is I mean not <laughs> I, I,
1: but everything goes better with cephalopods
0: it does have sort of a certain sex appeal I guess
1: <laughs> I uh, well I wasn't really going <laughs>
0: Oh, um, I mean, I, I was so, asked
1: what your favorite weapon is once for some quiz game or quiz show, and I said cephalopod, and there was this long pause. And I'm like, come on, squid to the face? That's totally
0: <laughs> I'm very excited about Updraft, and a lot of other people have been excited about it. You've been getting good,
1: I'm so glad to hear that. You've
0: been getting good reviews, yeah. and it's out on September 1st. Yeah. People can find you at Fran underscore Wild on Twitter, and you have some up- appearances coming up, I presume?
1: I do. I have a book launch at Barnes and Noble Rittenhouse Square in downtown Philadelphia on the 1st. Everybody should come. It's going to be great. We're going to have lots of uh, surprises and there will be cake. It's not a lie. The um on the 2nd, Chuck Wendig and I are going to be at Doyles Town Books and then on the 3rd, I will be at Reddit Ask Me Anything at Reddit Fantasy. The 4th through the 7th, I'll be at Dragon Con and Decatur Book Festival. And on the ninth, I will be at the Philadelphia Free Library, downtown branch with Gregory Frost, Michael Swanwick, John McGoran, Stephanie Feldman, and Siobhan Carroll talking about the future of science fiction. And then I go to the West Coast, and I will be at um, something called Why There Are Words, which is a literary um, reading on the 10th of September. On the 12th of September, I'm doing Writers with Drinks um, with Charlie Jane Anders. And then I'll be at Borderlands on the 15th. Are you writing all this down? I am, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll be at Borderlands on the 15th with Greg Van Eckout for his book launch uh, and with Shauna McGuire. And then I will go to San Diego on the 19th and be at Mysterious Galaxy also with Greg. And then my last stop out west is in Seattle. I will be at University Bookstore on the 21st of September. I come back. I have a couple days to do some laundry. And then I'll go to uh, Washington, D.C. I'm speaking at the Library of Congress on wings in fantasy and factual and, and history. I need to figure out the title for this presentation. But I'm actually going to deploy a PowerPoint for that one. Watch out. It's Washington, D.C., it's required. It, it, it's, it is, it is. And I'm, I'm really excited to be at the Library of Congress to do this. Um, my mom is really excited, too, which is funny. Hi, Mom. Um, and then after that is the Baltimore Book Festival for three days of absolute fun and mayhem on the Baltimore Inner Harbor. SIFWA has a major tent and programming all through the weekend. Tobias Paquel is our guest of honor. And uh, that is why I've been calling this whole thing Uptember because it is a nonstop um, cruise through uh, various places promoting updraft. And then in October, af- well, I'm coming up for um, at New York Comic Con for a day. And then just after CapClave, which is right after New York Comic Con, um, I will be hitting the road with Alana Myers and Seth Dickinson for a little Tortober road trip.
0: Oh my God, Fran. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of travel.
1: It's a lot of travel, which is my first Dragon Con. I've never been there, so I'm really excited. I have a reading and an autographing session, and I'm on a panel with Claire Eddy and James Cambius. Well,
0: well, you're going to be exhausted by the end of this.
1: Oh, so. I'll say.
0: <laughs> so I uh, I appreciate you coming on Rocket Talk right before yeah. you get started on this. And you just got back from WorldCon. Yep. So you're gonna be you're gonna be uh worn out. Are you going to World Fantasy too?
1: I am. I am. This is the big year. This was I I wanted to um if people asked me to do things, I wanted to be able to say yes. Um, uh, we're getting a lot of help from friends and family. Um, huge shout out to many, many of my friends, uh, especially Dan and Stacey Kunitz because I know they listen to this. Um, so thank you guys because we couldn't have done this without, um, everybody. And I'm just really excited to, to talk with people about Updraft and about the, the fiction that they love as well. So if you see me out there, come say hi. Um, remind me what day and what city I'm in.
0: Well, I will say to everybody, Fran is very friendly. <laughs> She's never yelled at me in person. Lots of people have, lots of people have, but she hasn't. Not like, uh, not like Cameron Hurley, who's always hollering oh, no. at me.
1: Cameron's a delight. I, I like. I'm
0: Cameron. just teasing. She likes to get, She gives. She gives me a hard time, so I have to. I have to give it right back to her. So. Oh. Anyway, I really appreciate you coming on, Fran. This was a lot of fun.
1: This was great talking to you. Thank you so much, Justin.
0: All right, everybody, go out and get up, draft. This has been Rocket <laughs> Talk.